you see yourself as a newcomer, you're welcome to join Pastor Ken's Newcomers Orientation. If you've joined in the last few months and haven't gone through the new members orientation, Hal Selstad is leading that. A couple things just to take note of. Um, two, I especially want to highlight, there is a, a men's meeting for all men. Uh, it's my understanding for just a few minutes right after church in this auditorium. So men, if you can stay put, um, I'm sure Rich will be in here shortly to uh, take the mic from me, 12, 12.05, and we'll try to get that going as quickly as possible. But it's about the men's ministry, some of the plans that, uh, that we have for that here at CBC. Uh, also, Community Institute begins this Wednesday night. And uh, one note, it, it's, it's good for this first week especially to get there early if you can, um, especially if you did not register ahead of time. And we are, not, we are doing registration for the kids Wednesday night. And so I highly recommend, if you have kids that are going to be in the Wednesday night program, please get there at 6.40, 6.45, and we'll have little quick forms that you can fill out for each of your children that you'd like to participate in our CBC Kids Midweek program. And like I said last week, we have a new curriculum, uh, the Gospel Project, and we're very excited about that for ages four and up. Um, four and fives, even preschool, are going to be involved in that now. Last week, we talked about uh, a subject that you may not have spent a lot of time thinking about, but um, has been growing in importance, or at least in, in uh, awareness, the subject of profanity. And our culture has changed and shifted, and I'm not Hopefully you understand last week, I'm not trying to either say that we need to just go back to the way it was in the 1950s and everything will be okay, and neither was I saying that we just need to be so immersed in culture now that we can't even see what is really being displayed, the values that are really being shown. pastor has said, culture is fallen values on display. It's values that may look like ours, may share some things in common grace of ours, but it's values that are being expressed by a world that does not know God, does not want to know God. And so last week we talked about profanity. And this week we're going to shift focus a little bit. I'm going to go on, uh, take an extended arc to get to where we're going. But I don't know if you know this or not, Possibly those of you who are older, this may be more familiar to you, but traditionally, all profanity has been divided into two categories, the holy and the body. The holy and the body, uh, the sacrament and the excrement, if you will. There are some words, of course, that don't quite fit in either category. Some of those are from the animal kingdom, but... Traditionally, that's the, the categories that have been assigned by linguists. You have the holy swear words and the body, related to body functions. Makes sense, right? And just a generation or two ago, the holy swear words were pretty much on the same level as the body swear words. There were words like damn or hell or using God's name flippantly, that you weren't allowed to say on television. And that was right up there with the 
blue profanity, the strong language. But I think it's interesting, and I use that, that phrase, strong language. When people say that, we know what they're talking about. But usually it doesn't mean words like God or Jesus Christ or damn or hell anymore. That's kind of passed out of the lexicon of modern profanity. Those words are almost in their own tier of, uh, they're, just, they're just words that you say. OMG has got to be one of the most unfortunate words that you see. It's just, it, it's just a little phrase that when you don't have anything to say, you say God's name. You say, oh, oh my God. That's just, a, that's just a filler. You're even mildly annoyed or mildly surprised. That's the word, the phrase that this culture is going to use. Tiger Woods has been known for his profanity on the links. <laughs> the networks have had to bleep him at times for using uh, R-rated swear words. It's just become part of his persona. We know athletes are going to swear. Tiger Woods got a potty mouth. One commentator noted that after Tiger's marital infidelities, she said, critics scolded Brit Hume for suggesting that Woods needed Christ's forgiveness. But almost no one cared when Woods swore in Christ's name. Interesting. The body swear words are the ones that we view as the strong language. But the most powerful words in our vocabulary, the revered names of our Godhead, they're not viewed as special anymore. Remember last week I talked about how social taboos in culture shift and change. And we can't just bury our heads in the sand and say, this is where I've always been, because things are going to change. Some words that were not offensive are now offensive. Some words that were maybe a bigger deal a hundred years ago, they're not a big deal anymore. And you have to work through those issues for yourself and think through it, how the culture is speaking today. But our culture is on the brink of incorporating almost all swear words, especially those from a religious background, into everyday language. When a generation or two goes about doing this, goes about reducing those words from strong language to just everyday words you throw into your conversation, one professor of media and culture at Syracuse University made this remark. He said, we're wearing those things out very quickly, meaning those words that used to be very potent and, and off-limits and taboo. We're wearing these things out very quickly, and you can't just make these things up. An entire culture has to agree that a word means something, that it has an aura and a gravitas, and that it takes generations. Cuss words are not a renewable resource, he said. Now, in his mind, he was saying things like the profanity that we use driving or the gesture that's almost universal for, I don't like the way that you just drove. It becomes so commonplace that they've lost their power. I'm going to make an application. I think we have gotten so used to God's name, so used to the words of God's realm, like damn and hell specifically, that they're losing their power. 
They're not a renewable resource in our culture. So we ask ourselves, is our current social norm of saying these holy category of words, is that technically taking God's name in vain? Don't just say yes, because we need to think about it. Is that technically taking God's name in vain when the unbelieving culture flippantly throws those words out? Secondly, why should it matter to Christians? Why should it matter to us what the culture is saying? Holy swear words, body swear words. How does that affect our subculture? We're not separate from culture, but we are a subsection of it. When someone exhales the name of our Savior in a sigh of frustration, do you wince externally, internally? Do you try to call them on the carpet? What's your rationale for that? Is it just, don't break the third commandment? I'm going to take what I said, it's, it's a large arc, and I hope you'll bear with me to answer these questions. But I think we can develop some dangerous habits when we try to use Scripture to justify our viewpoints. Let me say that again. We can develop some very dangerous habits when we're using Scripture. We're going to Scripture to justify what we already think and feel. What I mean by that is, to use an example, some of you grew up in a sub-sub culture of fundamentalism where it was wrong for women to wear pants. It was not a question. It was not a, a, a matter that every family decided. It was wrong for women to wear pants. And the justification, as you may have heard from a, pul- uh, a preacher up at the pulpit, was a woman, woman shall not wear that which pertaineth to a man. What does that mean? Well, they were pulling that from the law, the law of Moses, a, a specific command that God gave to his people Israel and applying it to us today. I'm going to tell them something and tell you something. <laughs> pants were not in the Old Testament. Nobody wore pants. But that fundamentalist preacher takes scripture out of context, tries to make it say what he wants to mean, it to mean, to fit his viewpoint. And you know what? If we just grab scripture out of context, detached from the rest of God's word, and we take one verse and try to make it say what we want it to say, so that we'll be right and you'll be wrong, we're no better. So friends, I want to give you some tools. I want to help you, help us all understand how God's word works. And when we're looking for justification, for reasoning, for our standards, for how we confront or if we confront someone, we all need to be on the same page. We need to understand how God's word is laid out. And in examining whether the law of Moses in the first five books of your Bible is applicable to our conduct today, which is the main question at hand, we have to deal with a verse like Romans 7.12, which says, So then, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. We have to contrast that with Romans 6.14.15, a chapter over. You are not under the law, 
but under grace. And it's difficult. And we're going to try to work through that this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your wisdom. We want to revere your word, but we want to interpret and apply it properly. Please give us grace and help in that effort. In the name of our Savior, amen. The law was not given directly to the church or directly for the church. If you want a theme statement for this section, the law was not given directly to us in the church or for us. God's redemptive plan, as you read, came in two great stages, before Christ and after Christ. And you have to, all you have to do is read a book like Hebrews to see how the old covenant is compared and contrasted with the new covenant. And what God is going to do and how we are part of his plan now. It's not inconsistent to claim that those Old Testament regulations have been set aside for the church age. But what does that mean? Well, traditionally, many Bible interpreters have divided up the Mosaic Law, the first five books of your Bible, really more the starting in late Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. That's where the law was given to the nation of Israel. Traditionally, they've divided that up into moral, civil, and ceremonial. The moral law would be something like God saying, do not, do not take another man's wife. Don't commit adultery. They might see, traditionally, the civil law, don't, uh, you need to handle the stranger within your boundaries with care and with respect. If somebody's not an Israelite, here's the steps for incorporating them into the community, how you treat them, what your expectations are for them. And then there were the ceremonial, which is the sacrificial systems and regulations. This view says that the ceremonial and civil laws are no longer directly applicable to us, but the moral laws last forever. And so we're obligated to obey the moral laws within God's code. There are several problems with this view. Several problems. First of all, how do you and I know where to draw those lines between the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial are infectious skin diseases a civil issue or a ceremonial issue? Certainly seems like in God's word, certain parts of the law could be read both ways. It was a civil issue because of how it affected the community, and it was a ceremonial issue because of how it affected your worship at the tabernacle. What about the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother. Does that seem like a, a moral category? It does, but... The promise of that is so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. That's an old covenant promise, friends. Even something as moral as obey your father and mother is tied to the land promise that God specifically gave to Israel, not to us. Second, Jewish interpreters in the Old Testament and even through the church age did not divide the law up that way. The ones who spent the most time in the Decalogue, it, the most time in the Pentateuch, they saw the law as a unified whole. 
They didn't divide it up into moral, civil, and ceremonial, even though they disagreed in many ways about different interpretations of the law. And third, New Testament passages don't allow us to break the law apart into the parts we think still apply today and the parts that, well, that would be embarrassing if we kept that or awkward. Let's just, let's just throw that, sweep that under the rug. Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Just as it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Paul's telling people who wanted to keep some parts of the law, you can't do it. You either keep all the law or none of it. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Friends, it's not a wise move on our part to start subdividing something that God gave as a solidarity and start picking at pieces of it and say, well, I know I can eat that animal. That's, that part doesn't apply anymore. But, you know, those, those moral laws about, you know, how men and women dress, you know, maybe that still applies today. Maybe I'll still tell my neighbor that they shouldn't do X, Y, or Z because of what I read in Leviticus this morning. You might be thinking of passages like Leviticus 6 that talk about these being everlasting ordinances. Everlasting. I mean, doesn't that mean their authority continues forever? Aren't we at least in some way still under the law? Well, Exodus 40.15 describes Aaron's priesthood as everlasting. And we know from passages like Hebrews 4 that Jesus is the great high priest who has replaced the Aaronic priesthood. We no longer have to offer sacrifices because he was the great sacrifice and he ever lives to make intercession for us. The key is to understand that everlasting can mean to the end of the age, through the end of its appointed time, however long that may be. And the, the Mosaic Law did rule through an age to supervise and point people to Christ, as Galatians 3.14 says. It was a school teacher or a tutor. It guided and pointed and taught to get to Jesus. In the law, God was saying, this is who I am. This is you, who you, my special chosen nation, Israel, is supposed to be to have a relationship with me. But of course, they couldn't keep the laws perfectly. They were broken just like we're broken. And God's standards were too high, too much. They couldn't do it. They needed the righteousness that he would provide through the ultimate Lamb of God. This also helps us to understand, friends, when even in the New Testament we read, like in Luke 16, 17, it's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Well, there you go, Zach. The law never passes away. The direct jurisdiction of the law has elapsed. God's truth as revealed in his word will never expire. Some parts of that law have been renewed, as pastor's been talking about through the, his message on the Sermon of the Mount, strengthened even. 
in the law of Christ. That is what we are to obey today. We are not under the law. Jesus came to fulfill that law, Matthew 5.17 says. And Romans 10.4 says that Christ is the end, the culmination of the law. I was actually teaching through some of these principles to the kids last hour as they were hearing about the Ten Commandments. And I asked them to think about a Christmas concert. Everything leads up to that Christmas concert. You could say this is the end, the culmination of the semester. Because the practices, the decorations, the notices that went out to parents all pointed to that big event that was to come. Christ is the culmination of the law. He came to fulfill it. God's precepts found their best and clearest expression through the perfect interpreter, the Son of Man. So the kingdom standards of righteousness, as Pastor has been mentioning, were clarified by the Lord in His earthly ministries and then through the apostles that He gave the church to establish that core doctrine for a new group of Christians. He corrected the misinterpretation of the law. He reapplied it properly, without error. As one commentator put it, the Mosaic law no longer functions as the ultimate and immediate standard of conduct for God's people. It must always be viewed through the lens of Jesus' ministry and teaching. It's very helpful here to consider Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 9, 20 and 21. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To Jews who still viewed themselves as being under the law of Moses and were keeping its regulations, maybe to identify themselves culturally, maybe just because it's what they'd always done, maybe many of them because they thought they were actually achieving salvation for themselves by keeping the law. And we know by the works of the law, no one can be justified. Paul was willing to submit to some of those regulations in order to win them. But he didn't understand that. He understood that he was not under the law. And when he went to the Gentiles, who had no standards at all, comparatively speaking, everything went. He understood that I'm going to relax some of those Jewish identifying marks, but I still am under the law of Christ. In a case then like taking God's name in vain... We're not bound to the third commandment as our final authority. We're bound to discover what the whole witness of Scripture, which includes the Mosaic Law, the principles there, the prophets, and particularly the teaching of Christ and His apostles, which clarifies that for us, what His expectations are for us. What the whole witness of Scripture might have to say about those holy swear words. So what does it mean then to take the Lord's name in vain? Do our euphemisms, our offhand expressions, our our frivolous filler when we don't have anything else to say, does that count? 
today? Well, God's name, friends, as revealed in Scripture, is his revelation of himself. Much like his word reveals his character, his name reveals his character. It carries the weight of his glorious reputation. So we often read that the Lord's motivation was for his name's sake. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own, 1 Samuel 12.22. And it's interesting that many of the things that Scripture says about God himself, it says about his name. It saves his people, Psalm 54.1. His people glorify his name, Psalm 29.2. God's name is what brings judgment and blessing, Isaiah 30, 27. And this weight of reputation, of glory, connected to God's names also applies to Jesus. Philippians 2, 9 and 10. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. God's name carries Wait. But one commentator makes a point that I think is very interesting, specifically as it relates to the third commandment. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. He says that it was less related to the Israelites' speech and more related to their carrying God's character around with them as his chosen people. In other words, it wasn't just connected to them taking oaths in God's name or using his name frivolously, the bigger picture was that they were his people. Everywhere they went on the earth, they were marked out as belonging to God, reflecting him. Leviticus 22, 31-33 made this clear. Keep my commands and follow them. I am the Lord. Do not profane my holy name, for I must be, as, I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. I am the Lord who made you holy and brought you out of Egypt to be your God. God's holiness was connected to his name. And the Israelites' lack of holiness, lack of conformity to his standards, was reflecting on his name. Thus, God's own people had a special responsibility to demonstrate by their actions that they were his people. Someone said, the direct application of the third commandment in its era was for God's covenant nation to follow the laws which directly reflected God's tremendous character, his purity. Without hypocrisy, the in vain part of it. Because if they were being hypocritical, keeping some laws but not others, keeping the externals, but then, as he called them on the carpet for, being cruel, to strangers, to widows in the land. That was taking his name in vain. So the principle, friends, and, and the New Testament reinforces this as we'll see, is that the entirety of our behavior reflects on the Lord who bought us. The entirety of our behavior reflects on his name. As redeemed saints, we've been as Ephesians 4.24 says, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And we won't turn to Ephesians 4, but it's interesting. In context there, that new self in Christ 
is contrasted with the old life of opposition to God in sensuality and impurity in verses 17 through 19. Later in the passage, we're motivated to speak truthfully, not in anger. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Part of being like God in true righteousness and holiness is how we speak, but it's not the entirety of it. You could take God's name in vain without ever using one of those holy swear words. According to Martin Luther, the worst instance of God's name being taken in vain was, quote, when false preachers rise up and offer their lying vanities as God's word, unquote. It's not even just bringing God's unique names and his unique realm into our speech unthinkingly, it's misrepresenting his truth or clothing our wicked deeds with a hypocritical exterior, a veneer that makes us look good but reflects shame on the name of God. 2 Timothy 2.19b says, Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Romans 2 says, Paul asking people, You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You Jews, you think that you're still keeping the law. You think that you're better than the pagans because of your code of conduct that you followed for generations. But you don't follow it. You follow the parts that you want. You cast aside the rest. You're reflecting shame on the name of the Lord who bought you. Anything that distorts the image of our Lord as it reflects from our lives is treating his name, his great reputation, with contempt. But it is hard to escape the conclusion that a part of our responsibility is to uphold the character of God through his name. So, throwing around damn or hell or OMG may seem like a minor offense compared to some of the other things that we could betray God. But we're treading on very dangerous ground because what we're doing is dragging the sacred down to our frustration. Meaning, we recast the vocabulary of the divine as our empty language. When we don't know what to say, we say the highest words that humanity can know. When we're angry, we take God's prerogative, damning something, the, the eternal punishment of hell, and we incorporate it in our speech flippantly, frivolously. It's kind of idolatry, isn't it? Idolatry is taking something and worshiping it, putting it on the level of God. So what about that, Christian? Is that something that you've gotten into the bad habit of? No, the third commandment doesn't directly apply to that. It's bigger. 
It's broader. It's more serious. Your flippant use of God's name or God's realm may be indicative of a heart that has lost touch with how great and how holy God is. You've lost the sense of his majesty. And you're creeping along with your nose on the ground because you've forgotten what it's like to look higher and to be reminded of how great and how good our God is. In the last few moments, as you think about that, and it's sobering, we all need to check our hearts and not stop fighting that battle. But I need to ask, because swearing, even if it is something, and I'm talking about all swearing now, the holy, the body, euphemisms, all of it, even if you have decided this is, these words are ones I will not use, they're not acceptable in my family, we've drawn a line here, Someone may have drawn a line here, but this is our line. You are going to encounter more swearing today than any time, I would say, in American history. Now, being a soldier in in World War II, you're going to hear a lot of swearing. But I'm saying in general culture, everyday conversation, you are going to encounter profanity more now than you would before. So set aside for now, the matter of your own standards, not that you don't need to have them, or that you shouldn't be struggling to think these things through, but think about swearing around us and how we react to that. First of all, think when unbelievers swear. When you hear profanity from people around you, it's, interest, it's important to note, of course, that these people are unbelievers. They don't carry God's name around with them like we do. They don't bear the weight of his glorious reputation. So we can't have the same expectations of them that we would have of ourselves as his people. If we feel the absolute need to correct their foul language, perhaps someone that just spouts off so much profanity that it's distracting, that it needs to be mentioned, you need to Keep in mind, they're not going to appreciate or understand your perspective, right? They're not viewing it the same way that you do. For example, my wife and I, our family has not really had a great history with pets. Some of you know, we've had some pets that we kept for a few weeks, few months, and then gave them away because it just wasn't a good fit with our family. Someday, right, Lena? She's shaking her head now. Someday we'll have a big dog. That's my goal. But one of those instances was when Lena, and this is, I'm going to put this on her, she brought home a little gray kitten. A little gray kitten shocked me. She came home from work with a kitten. What what are we going to do with a, a pet? We didn't even have kids at that point, right? So we started settling into life as pet owners. What do you do with a kitten? Well, you feed it, you know, give it a litter box, and then when you're not home, you let it, you know, roam around outside. Because we're not going to let it scratch our furniture (laughs) apart. Well, our neighbors, long since moved, our neighbors, uh, it was a couple who had never been able to have children, to my understanding. And they had several cats already that they treated like children. 
They were their cherished little babies. So, when they saw us letting out this young kitten to roam around outside, fend for itself during the day, you may or may not think that's a good thing, but that's what we did. They took it very personally. They actually had a little mini intervention. They brought, came over and said, we just don't know if you're ready to be a parent yet. <laughs> it's a cat! They, not according to their view, whether they realized it or not, that meant more to them than just a, a pet. It was a little person. So eventually, we just gave the cat to them. And you know, he, he seemed happy, except that he, every time they tried to open the door, he tried to get out. <laughs> Friends, we can't assume that somebody is going to appreciate that the way we do. They're not going to have the same perspective. When you say, this offends me, just like I looked at those people and said, Really? It's a cat. They're going to look at you and say, Really? It's just a word. What's the big deal? So my recommendation is, you need to use those bullets carefully. The times when you can go to an unbeliever and approach them or correct them for ungodly conduct are precious few before they tune you out altogether as a holier-than-thou Puritan. If that's a bullet that you want to shoot, be careful. That's one less bullet to approach them about spiritual matters and other things. Not saying you can't, but be careful. Remember, Pastor and I both talked about separately, thinking sometimes that we have that type of intellectual contempt. I'm better than you. I have better standards than you. I grew up better than that. I didn't learn those words. I have a better vocabulary. Be careful, because it can come across as pride when you mean to just communicate concern. What about when believers swear, other Christians? Again, you may need to exhort a Christian whose mouth has gotten lazy, who's been using words that the culture provided without thinking about it. You may have an obligation or an opportunity to say something but not everybody's going to draw the line where you do. And friends, if it boils down to a gray area and you think you have the liberty to use certain lower-level profanities, I'm not using God's name, I'm not using the worst ones, I just, you know, I grew up rough, Zach. Well, I point you to 1 Corinthians 10. I have the right to do anything, someone says but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And then 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble. Maybe by keeping a closer wrap on your mouth, by thinking through those words that you think you have the freedom to say, you're going to help another Christian in their walk, which is a much higher responsibility. Swearing among unbelievers. Swearing among believers. Let me give you a third category, at least to think through. 
swearing around your kids. Set an example for your kids, your grandkids. You know, they don't have the same maturity that we do. The word that you think you have license to say in very limited scenarios, like when you hit your thumb with a hammer or when someone cuts you off in traffic, they may throw at their classmate at school. Well, Daddy said that word. And your defenses start crumbling, don't they? I would just say be careful. Kind of like drinking alcohol. You may have the liberty to do that. You need to be careful about how you do that in front of your kids. Is that really something that's worth it? For the example, are your kids going to be able to control themselves in whatever area like you are? Maybe not. And then finally, swearing in media. Oh, there's a fun one, huh? I only have a minute left. Swearing in books, magazines, websites, TV, movies. How do you approach that? How do you view that? Is that something that you shun at all costs? Is that something you just drink up? It's no big deal? Well, certainly. I would, I would encourage you, if you have a weakness in a certain area, whether that's to use profanity, whether that's maybe just sarcastic speech, avoid it. If that's your weakness and that comes bubbling out of you at the inconvenient moments, then why don't you stop it at the source and stop taking that in? And even if the depiction of evil, whatever that is, doesn't affect you like it might others, still, be careful about becoming desensitized to something over time. You can go to screenit.com, kidsinmind.com, just to name a couple. Websites that are going to give you, before you take your family to the theater, the level of sexual content and profanity and swearing. They're not perfect. Most of the time it's unbelievers judging a movie. Certainly not everybody has the same standards that you do, but at least go in armed for battle. Friends, we don't expect the world to be sanitized for our convenience. We're going to need to know how to swim in that filthy river. Sitting on the bank, I'm better than that. I'm not even going to pay attention to what culture says. It's not an option. You need to know how to swim, how to keep your head above water. But don't drink from that water. Don't gulp that in. Don't sink down to the bottom and, and stop swimming and say, ah, I'm, it's too late for me. I'm too old. It doesn't matter how my words are anymore. You just got to accept me the way I am. I grew up that way. Keep struggling. Keep fighting. Keep working through these issues. And pray for God's help along the way. Let's pray. Lord, we don't claim that we're perfect fact that we claim that we're not. We're flawed, broken people who are relying on your grace every minute of every day. And I pray that you would give us humility as we tackle these issues. Help us not to lift ourselves above others, nor to look down on others who have a stricter standard. Lord, let us show grace and kindness, and let's not stop fighting Help us in that great struggle 
to bring your name the glory that it deserves. We pray in that blessed, glorious name. Amen.